Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the TWS podcast. It's lights out and away we go. I got free sausages sent to me every week for a year. Brilliant. <laughs> no, I never really got to, I never really got to a place where I could call Michael a friend of mine, really. Don't worry, guys, I'm back. Panic's over. I'm here. And it was Wayne Rooney who walked through the doors. And I remember him saying, just make the most of every moment. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives, talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Technowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former professional rugby player. He has played for Saracens, Bath in England, and is now a pundit. Welcome to the podcast, David Flatman. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. A top sportsman is pushing it, but um, <laughs> top heavy, top heavy at least. <laughs> Um, every time on the podcast, we like to start with a few random questions before we delve into your career. That's okay? Yeah, of course. Who is nice the most famous person in your phone book? Well done. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Well, Mason, um, good question that. I think, well, I don't want to say Mike Tyndall. Uh, Zara Phillips, because she's actually royal, maybe. Um, Gabby Logan would be in my phone book. Um and uh Barack Obama. I made that up. Um that's a good question, and I've never been asked it before. I've probably Gabby Logan's definitely famous, isn't she? Yeah, Gabby Logan. There you go. She's a very good presenter, yeah. She's she is the queen. She's amazing, yeah. Okay, so if you could trade lives with anyone for one day and one day only, who would it be and why? Oh, great question. My dog. <laughs> You don't do anything, mate. Just eat and sleep and walk. He goes out for a walk, not too long. I took him a long one yesterday. Didn't like it. Slowed right down halfway through. Wasn't interested. Didn't want to jump into the car afterwards. He likes a short walk. He gets cuddled all day. Got two young kids. They drop food. He gets it all. And he gets fed by me. Posh, like organic food for his coat and his health. And he does nothing. He basically lies down and watches telly all day. So I often look at him and think, why am I after work? And you're sitting here doing nothing. You should be earning your living, mate. But yeah, perfect life. My dog. Yeah. <laughs> if you, if you could have any superpower, what would you have, and why? Good question, Mason. Um, I think I would have invisibility. Um, and there's lots of funny reasons I could give for that. But I think actually 
quite often I feel like I really enjoy my job. I really enjoy, I do different jobs, but I really enjoy being around people. I'm, I think when people talk about being an extrovert, you sound like a show off, but actually I, I don't think it's that. I think I don't actually love being the center of attention. Um, so I never have birthday parties or really anything like that if I can avoid it. Um, but I do get energy from people. Um, but I also, a lot of the time I like being on my own and I like being quiet and I'm not a quiet bloke to people that know me, you know, you haven't invited me on because I'm a quiet bloke. Um, but I'd like more of my life. I'd like to be quiet more than I get the opportunity to be quiet. So I would go invisible so that I could, you know, nick money from my friends, um, steal cash from coffee shops. Obviously I'd do that. Uh, I'm not stupid, uh, but I would also, and, I would also have fun driving past speed cameras while invisible. I would do all those things, but actually I wouldn't mind being able to just disappear for a bit. And not because I'm unhappy. I'm not very happy, very balanced. Things are good. I just crave a little bit of uh, me time. And I think being invisible would be the ultimate me time because you could just be nowhere. That would be cool. Would you like to be invisible, Mason? Yes. Yeah. Cool, wouldn't it? What we want to take you back to the beginning and talk about what your joy world childhood joyhood what the your memories uh, growing up uh, and that you always what to be a rugby player well yeah good question i think my, my you know route into rugby was probably like pretty much everyone else's um one of my parents this time for me, it was my dad, took me down to the local rugby club. I was quite a big kid. I wasn't a giant, but I was quite a big kid. Um, not very athletic, so I was never going to play football or run or anything like that. My dad played rugby from a rugby family, and that's how it goes. And I was built for rugby, you know, perfect shape to be a prop, really, and um, was a prop from eight or nine years old all the way through, never did anything else. So um, that that's the route in, really. And I think... Yeah, when you're involved in one sport to pro level and it's kind of part of your life from the word dot almost the day dot almost you you often you often you're biased towards that sport and you think it's the greatest sport. I don't necessarily think that. I I just think that I know what rugby gives you. And there are things like danger that it gives you. There there is a risk to getting hurt when you play rugby. And I think there probably isn't anyone who has played rugby for a long period of time without being hurt and hurt injuring themselves. <clears throat> excuse me, but there probably are people who've played tennis for 30 years and not really hurt themselves or football and not really hurt themselves. Um, so it is a dangerous sport in some senses. It isn't for everybody, but um, what it gives you is it, it gives you built-in mates. So you, you have lots of mates automatically. You work very hard alongside these people. You try very hard and they, they try very hard for a common goal and that unites you. It gives you empathy for people who make mistakes it, it also you learn from the empathy you receive um people rely on you and you deliver you rely on people and they deliver for you um and also you rely on people and they let you down and you need to know why you need to forgive and you let people down and they and you learn from their forgiveness and their acceptance of that and i think that without knowing it it can get you know it can be quite cerebral about it but without knowing it i think being in a rugby team gives you an awful lot more than it takes away. It takes away a bit of time, takes away the odd bit of bone or cartilage. 
Um, my body smashed to bits, but I don't care. I don't care. Um, I loved it. I don't miss it, but I loved it. And it gave me a huge amount. It gave me everything I've got, really. And I agree with you. I think even down to sort of grassroots level, like I played rugby when I was when I was younger, played rugby, football and cricket. And for some reason, I don't know why, but rugby seems to be, I know it's more the social side, but you get your mates, are, you get stronger mates, I feel, from rugby. You, It's I think a different type of sport from football and cricket and other sports where, yeah, it's it's very social. You all stay behind, you have a drink, you shake hands, you... Whereas football and cricket and stuff, they're not quite the same as that. I've got a theory. Um, I think it's because it's harder than those sports. And that's not, I'm not being competitive about that. You know, in terms of skill, cricket is a million times harder than rugby. And so is football, actually, um, you know, to a point. Um, football is a lot, a lot about athleticism and endurance and repeated speed and skill. Cricket is about skill and you know, tactics, yes, but skill and, you know, extended periods of concentration, which most rugby players would really struggle with. So that is a skill in itself. Um, I'm talking about physically harder. So if you had to translate a football match, a cricket match or a rugby match at pro level into a gym session, rugby's equivalent would be harder. It's much harder on the body. I think everyone accepts that. So I think you can, it's almost the only time really you, you shouldn't really um, compare sport with the military, but actually it's, it's a parallel you can draw because we hear about the sort of band of brothers type stuff in the military. Well, actually, I think if you go to horrible places with each other and you try extremely hard and it gets dark and you're panicking for air and you're getting smacked to bits and people are literally covering people, my mates are keeping me safe on the field. You know, they're backing me up physically. That does create a slightly different bond from going out working towards a common goal and all trying to be skillful independently. You know, we bite literally bind onto each other and physically assist each other and rescue each other. So it's not saying it's better. I'm not doing that because that's silly and it's irrelevant, but actually I think the bonds can be different and can be so strong at social level because, you know, my mate at the front here, my, I had a water mains water tap leak the other day and the local water board sent someone Turns out to be my mate, Kelsey, who plays at the local club. He's about 300 years old. Well, he's 40, really. But he's been playing there forever. And he is just this adored man. And he's an adored man around this area because he's brave and he doesn't let people down and he tries. And, you know, Monday to Friday, he's fixing water valves outside people's houses like mine. Minging job. Horrible job it was. Horrible weather. And he's out there grafting. And on a Saturday, he's the hero because he would do anything for anyone can rely on him. So I think, you know... A lot of team sports give you a lot. I think rugby gives you a huge amount. Yeah, no, I'd agree. So yesterday, me and Mason did a bit of research. So I apologise if my research might be wrong, but we'll, we'll go with it. Yeah. So you played with some great players, uh, England youth setup, such as Johnny Wilkinson, Mike Tyndall, Steve Borthwick and more. What are your memories of that time and, and playing in, I presume, with such a good team? Just bitter that they've gone on to do better than me, really. Um, Mike Tyndall, yeah. I mean, look, we... Steve Borthwick's England boss, Johnny Wilkinson, Johnny Wilkinson's the king. Uh, Mike Tyndall's done the best because he's married into the royal family. So he has to go to loads of formal events, which I wouldn't like. I wouldn't like going to formal events. I don't like, I wouldn't like all that, but otherwise he's done well. Um, no, I think we had great memories and we were a brilliant team and we were very close and we're all, a lot of us are still really good friends now and there are great names in that team you haven't mentioned because there are too many people that, you know, I love those people and, there's 
there's a bond there, you know, just not unlike other sports, but we played together, was 25 years ago now. 1997, I played in that team. 26 years ago, I played in that team. And there are guys I would call close friends from that team still. You know, I can name the whole team, 1 to 15, and I would be in semi-regular contact with 13 of them. You know, so it's great. I was, I was on holiday in the summer with James Grindle, who played scrum half. I was swapping texts with Lee Best, who played fullback. Ian Bolsher and I were on about five, you know, WhatsApp groups together. Alex Sarnison, the boss of Sale, I see him every few weeks around the Premiership. Andy Beatty, who played number eight, God, we're godfather to each other's children. You know, it, Borthwick, Andy Sheridan, who played in the second row for us on that tour, played prop for England in the end. I caught up with him in Toulon last time I was down there, went out for dinner. Lee Mears, the hooker, he's one of my great mates from Bath. John Dawson, the tight head, one of my favourite people in the world. You know, it's the list goes on. There's loads of them. And, you know, I'm going for Christmas lunch with Tins, yes, but with James Lofthouse, who played fly half in that team, kept Johnny out of the fly half slot and ended up doing his shoulder really young and had to retire. But, you know, this is, this is the thing that team sport gives you. These people were my friends 25, 26 years ago, and they're still my friends now. Amazing. Well, speaking of, of friends, um, we've been in touch with one of your former teammates. Um, so I believe you made your England debut with Leon Lloyd. And yeah. Leon was a guest on our podcast a few weeks ago. Oh, great. And um, he said that you made your debut together against South Africa in 2000 and you've got a great story about that game. Papa Louis, Papa we call him. Pat Lloydy, mate. I'm glad he's teed me up because otherwise I would have felt bad telling it. But, um, oh, no, I see what I ate. Oh, yeah. He's talking about one story. Did he mention that he came on and punched someone and got and lost us the game? Yep. Yeah. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think he actually lost us the game, but we prefer the version that tells everyone that he lost us the game. Um, yeah, I, we went out after the second test and it's a long story, but I won't do the long version. Um let's just say a few beers and you know memory's a bit patchy but I do remember there was all sorts of chat the next morning like we I can't give you all the details so it's not appropriate and there are people involved you know wouldn't like it but no, no one did anything wrong that's the point but from memory the police did turn up um at the hotel um to get older someone i.e me and one or two others who had been accused of kidnap, kidnapping someone and <laughs> taking them back to our hotel when they didn't want to come. And it, it, none of it was true. And it all was like five minutes later, it was like, no, obviously not. Um, none of that happened. But there was, so there was a kidnap charge that was sounded pretty serious to start with day after your second cap. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm only 20 years old. I'm already going to be binned. It turned out I got binned for being rubbish, not for that, but I got, I, you know, but, I was like, oh my God, and the, that went away really quickly. Then it was like, by the way, what happened with the golf buggy? And this is Clive. I said, golf buggy, don't know what you're talking about, mate. And he said, just tell the truth. I said, I'm, I don't know what you're talking about. <clears throat> Turns out a golf buggy had been nicked from reception, written off. Um, gone, it had driven through a front door or something of an apartment or something like that. Wasn't me. Turns out, so Clive was sort of very, very upset at this point, really really pissed off because no one would just come forward and front up and say, I did it, get over it, really sorry, I'll pay for the damage. Um, I mean, we're in South Africa, right? So it would have been in Rand. It would have been about 12 quid to fix a golf buggy, right? So it's, you know, so it's like, but no one came forward to everyone thought it was me and a couple of others. 
So they thought it was me, Danny Grupok and Julian White. And ever since then, they've called us the Joburg Three. And it's like, they thought it was us. It wasn't us, but everyone thought we were just lying. We bottled it. Years later, I found out it was Mike Tyndall and Austin Healy that did it. Um, and they just let us, everyone assume it was us. Cheers, lads. Um, we've forgiven them. But there was also a, there was a decanter of port from memory stolen from reception. Because uh, they shut the hotel bar a bit early after we beat the Springboks. And um, again, it was like, that nah, wasn't us either. So there was three big things that happened. One was kidnap. That was us, but it, we hadn't done it. So that was fine. We were off the hook. And I was the golf buggy, everyone thought it was us, but wasn't. The decanter report, everyone thought it was us, but wasn't. The Joburg three. But it turned out that the decanter report had been donated to the owner of the hotel, I think, by Nelson Mandela upon his release from Robin Island. And someone had nicked it and done the lot. Um, there were rumours that the uh, decanter was actually located in one of our bedrooms the following morning. <laughs> I think I think that might be a little bit of spice, to be honest. But um, it was my dad before the tour said, "Mate, have a great tour to keep your head down." <laughs> not, I did not manage. I had a good tour, but I did not manage to keep my head down. So I came back with um, having been acquitted of an unof- unofficially, well, acquitted of an unofficial kidnap charge, presumed guilty of. Uh, criminal damage and theft of a golf buggy and then theft of the most prized decanter report in South Africa, probably <laughs> on the whole of the African continent. So yeah, it didn't go brilliantly. My, re- my review email wasn't great after that tour, put it that way. But the moral of the story is Leon Lloyd lost you the game. Lloydy lost us the game on our first cap. And I still think that Lloydy, Joe Worsley and I got our first cap on the same day. And if only Wurzel hadn't gone on to get tons of caps and win a World Cup, all three of us could have said that the reason we didn't really get any further with England was because of Lloydy. But unfortunately, one of us did, so we can't quite blame him, but we'd like to. 1998, you won the Tepney's the Bitter Cup final against, against Wasps, yeah? 18 at the time. At just break. Well done. Okay, so in 1998, you won the Tetley's Bitter Cup final against Wasps. So you're only 18 at the time, but what are your memories of that and kind of breaking into the Saracens team around that time, were you? Well, I'm sorry to tell you, I didn't because I was still at school. But <laughs> there is a story, luckily. That was 90, That was the end of the 97-98 season, yeah. and I left school the 98-99 season. So I joined Saris. That was the end of the season in 98. I started the beginning of the next season. 98, 99. <clears throat> However, I was at school and I got a call from the big boss at Saracens and they said, look, what are you doing on Saturday? I said, well, playing for my school. And they said, no, I wasn't. I was, you know, nothing. Playing for my club or whatever. And they said, well, we need you to be on the bench for the cup final at Twickenham. And I had never played a game of rugby against men before. I was just a schoolboy, 17. So actually, uh, no, I would have been 18 by then. But yeah, so, but I, in the end, I got... I was like, oh my God, rang my dad. And I was like, oh my God, mate, I'm going to be on the bench for Saracens, the cup final at Twickenham. We're going to win it. It's going to be amazing. And then no one called me back. So like on the Friday, I rang this, rang the club and I was like, hello, this is David Flatman. Do you need me on the bench? And they were like, no, did no one tell you? No. Oh no, he's fit now. See you, mate. So that was it. I saw them for pre-season about six weeks later. So I'm afraid that was my big moment. Mum and dad were like on online trying to buy tickets. And it was like, no, no, I won't be there. I'll be watching on telly like everyone else. You played eight times for England, but Gould never quiet break into the first team. Rugby, 
Why do you think that was? Well, Mason, it, it there's a lot of reasons. I think I think there were some really good players around who when some areas were better than me, some areas weren't. There is a combination. I always tell jokes about this and make a laugh of it because I'm not, I don't look back and I'm not bitter or upset or anything, but my life would have been a lot easier if I got 50 caps instead of eight. But actually, a few reasons. One is that I got a lot of injuries at bad times. So I got a six-month layoff in the season leading into the World Cup. I played the best rugby of my life the summer before that. Would I have gone to the World Cup? I was fully fit by the time the World Cup started, but I would have missed a lot of the prep and that sort of stuff. So I wasn't in contention for the first bit. Would I have gone? Maybe not, but didn't have a chance to try. The next, the next, the summer, you know, the, the next tour after the World Cup, immediately after I was picked for that tour, I was told I was going to play against New Zealand, against Australia. And I got injured in the last game of the season, went on the tour, but never got it right. And I was out for 20 months with four operations on my Achilles. I was in a, it was bad. I got told to retire by a few people, but kept going. I came back for a bit. I got back on another England tour and then I popped my shoulder again. I ended up having five shoulder operations, you know, three on one side, two on the other. And that that's not the only reason, but it's contributing factor. Also, I'm not massively athletic bloke. So I would train really hard. I was really strong, but I train really hard and I just was never going to be a super mobile prop compared to the most mobile guys. So that didn't help. Um, and yeah, a bit of talent. Didn't Wasn't massively talented. I think if I had never got injured, which anyone could say that I'd have more caps if I hadn't got injured, if I've never, if I'd never had such serious long injury, I would have got more England caps. I feel reasonably confident of that. I don't think I would have been a fifty cap Test player because I wasn't good enough. Um, I've got the cartilage of a young lamb, you know. I've got sort of, the, I've got gorilla strength in certain muscles and lamb strength in others. So, it, I was never quite stable physically. Um, I didn't feel good physically from two thousand and three when I injured my shoulder. <clears throat> onwards for the next nine years, I never felt physically good playing rugby. I felt compromised and hurt all the way through until the end. And I stopped at 32. I should have stopped at 30, really. I just felt battered the whole time. Um, never felt fresh or uninjured. So there's a bit of that, a bit of talent. Yeah, that's why. But I'm, I'm over it, mate. Packs are bringing it up, though. While you mentioned sort of injuries and, and things like that, at the moment, it feels like the last sort of couple of years, the safety in rugby is becoming a lot more important. We see in the World Cup currently, there's lots of um, head injuries and red cards and head injury assessments and things like that. Do you think the game of rugby is as safe as it can be or do you think more needs to be done? I think this is a, what it is and what it has to be and what it already is, is an ongoing conversation. Um, in short, because, you know, I'm not writing a book on it, but it's difficult to comment on this without sounding like someone who wants to over-sanitise the game or who is really glib about people being safe playing just because I don't play anymore. I have children who may or may not want to play rugby, so I want people to be safe playing rugby. That does actually, because I've got children, doesn't mean anything. I want people to be safe as they can playing rugby. Um, I would like as much time and as much resource going towards researching how rugby could reasonably be made safer. Um for amateurs as well as professionals, primarily for amateurs, really, because there are just so many more of them. And they're the, they're, they're, the, they're the foundations of the game, really, not the pro game. So 
I want that to be ongoing and as aggressively as possible, as much as time and money as rugby can afford, I'd like to go towards that. But concurrently, I think um, rugby isn't doing itself any favours by trying to be everyone's best friend. It's almost turning, it, it needs to be careful it doesn't turn into a Labrador, a sporting Labrador, trying to be everyone's best friend. It, you, it could be said that rugby is becoming too apologetic for that. It's trying to be a game. I think sometimes it's trying to be a game for everyone. And rugby union is not a game for everyone. And it never will be. You know, football is the sporting superpower. That's the global force. There's nothing like football. There is nothing like football for support, following viewerships. There's nothing competes with it in television, in sport, nothing. Um, but it's not a game for everyone. Nobody in my family, I've got a brother-in-law who watches football because he played for West Ham. I've got the, no one else in my family watches football. No one. I quite like football, but I don't watch whole games. I watch match of the day. Yeah. I never watch whole games. I haven't got time and I don't really like watching whole games. I I know very few people who regularly watch whole football games. And I know quite a lot of people and my mates, mainly because they're rugby, right? Which is fine. Yeah. I love football. I love football, but I really like football. But football doesn't pretend to be everyone's game. It's got a massive following, so lucky football. But... I think rugby needs to just accept a little bit that it's a dangerous endeavour. No one ever played, or maybe some kids have been forced at school in the past. No one ever voluntarily played rugby union and was shocked that people ran into them. Everybody knew what was coming. We all know what's coming. There are things you should do to mitigate against danger. Of course, let, let's keep doing that. Let's look at, let's absolutely look at that, you know, Look at Formula One compared to where it was a few generations ago. Let's absolutely look at that. But there are certain things in rugby, it's once you remove, you probably can't put them back and it will never recover. So there's all sorts of stuff now. You know, it's difficult. It's more and more difficult to challenge in the air now for a ball, which was a key skill, still is a key skill. Will skill under the high ball be important in rugby in five years? Maybe, maybe not. And you the know. first game of the World Cup, Tom Co- was it Tom Curry got sent off? Yes. I understand why he got sent off. It was a clash of heads, but there was no intention to it. It was a complete accident. And it just felt as a, as a viewer, just a casual rugby viewer, that, I don't know, is, is that a red card? I can see why it's given, but... Yeah, then you've had similar ones that haven't been since, right? So we don't know. We're, we're on telly. We're the supposed experts. We have no idea what is going to be given for certain decisions. None. It is a lottery and it's not a lottery for the refs, but we don't know about it as much as they do. Right. So we don't know as much about it as they do. So it that's what it feels like. And that is why that these this is one of the examples of, you know, rugby's almost taking its worries around safety almost a bit too far. <laughs> I, I, you know, do I know anyone who stopped their kids playing rugby just in case? I don't, maybe I don't actually. Um, I've got friends whose kids have had, whose kids have had repeated concussions. Um, that's a worry. I mean, if it were my kid, that would be a worry for me and I might stop them playing it for a season or forever. Um, but absolutely, let's take that seriously. But I just feel like, rug, if you watch Australian Rugby League, right, they're the other end, from what the bits that I watch, they are the other end of the spectrum. They are like, get after it, mate. Toughen up, mate. I'm not saying we should go there. I'm genuinely not saying that. Although as fun as it is to listen to and watch and it's macho, I do sometimes think to myself, bloody hell, mate. 
that's not right. I mean, they're, they're not as bad as they used to be. They're not as extreme as they used to be. And I love watching it, but it, I, I do feel rugby union needs to just zoom out a little bit and say, hang on a minute. No one involved in rugby is convinced by us telling them rugby is going to be safe. It's not safe. It's not safe for your kids. It's not safe for you. It's not safe for your mum. It's not safe, mate. Like, it's not lethal. It's not Isle of Man TT, you know, which is amazing to watch. But, geez, would you want any of your family doing it? I mean, personally, I love motorbikes. I must say I love the Isle of Man TT, but, and I watch, I watch it. But, no, no, that's too scary for me. Would I let my kids do any sport they want? No, I wouldn't let my kids box. My kids can do whatever they want. They're not boxing. They're not kickboxing. Not that they want to, but they're not doing that. I would not allow that on my watch because that is just the mo- the sole motivation in a boxing match with well, his body shots is blows to the head. We want to, you know, but I'm a complete hypocrite because I, I really love boxing and I watch the big boxing matches and I pay to watch them. So I'm a complete hypocrite. Um, equally, I don't want to kill cows, but I eat beef, you know? So it's kind of, we're all hypocrites in some ways. Rugby needs to be careful that it doesn't become too apologetic. PicturePath is an award-winning visual timeline app that's empowering individuals with autism. This free app provides a simple way for users to plan out activities, such as going to a match or a theatre, using structured timelines that reduce stress and anxiety. Users create a visual timeline that caters to their specific daily needs, allowing them to prepare for activities, events and routines. PicturePath provides a structure that enhances communication promotes independence, improves memory recall, and supports users to manage their day with confidence. Whether for personal use or in educational settings, PicturePath is the ultimate tool for individuals with additional needs, empowering them to manage their schedules, track progress, and enjoy more activities. PicturePath. Download the app today. You left... Samsons. Samsons in 2003 to join Bath. Why do you decide to leave... Samson's. Samson's. And why do you choose Bath? Just the money, mate. It's got loads of cash. Uh, I'm joking. No, I didn't. Um, wish I had. Um, no, I, um, I I did five years at Saracens and Saracens wasn't the club then that it is now. And there were great things about it, but I really didn't like the way certain things were going. And I was very honest with the owner, Nigel Ray. We're still good mates today. And, I was quite honest with why I was leaving. I didn't love the coaching. I felt like I was stagnating and I didn't want to stagnate. Um, and I was just kind of over it, massively over it. And it was quite a transient place. There was a lot of different coaches all the time. I wasn't convinced the coaches were being signed because they were good coaches. I think they were being signed because they were big names and they were they had been good players. And that doesn't mean anything really. I mean, what it means very little in coaching terms. Um, you know, a genius doesn't always make the best teacher. So... There was that. And I also got injured playing for Saris, that shoulder injury I mentioned before the World Cup. And I came and I I kind of I came down to Bath, I think, to watch Saracens play. And I stayed for a weekend. I had loads of mates down here and I thought, oh, this place is bloody great. Um, and loads of my great mates were down here and I thought maybe. And then the call came. And as soon as I, as soon as it became an option, I just knew I wanted to play for Bath and I still live here. I mean, I'm in at home now doing this pod. I'm live. I live in Central Bath. I'm looking out on Bathstone townhouses. And as soon as I came to Bath, as soon as I arrived on day one, I thought, "This is it, mate. I'll never leave this place. I love it." And I still, 20 years I've been here, and I absolutely love it. I love it. 
I won't ever, I, you know, I'll go on holiday. I will never move. I will never leave this place on a permanent basis. I love it. Yeah. Okay, so we just want to stop. So midway through, we've got a few questions for you. Uh, would you rather questions? Yeah. Okay, so night in or night out? In. Beach holiday or city break? Beach. Would you rather talk to animals or speak every language? Animals. Would you rather explore space or the bottom of the ocean? Space. And would you rather go forward 200 years and see your future family or back 200 years and meet your ancestors? Back, 100%. Fair enough. Well then. That's true. It is true that you once... Dislocated. Dislocated his shoulder against against Saracens. Samson's you played on. That doesn't sound like a wise decision. No, you're right, Mason. I I did, but that's all rugby players really. It, it's not. My friend once called it a silly boys club, and it kind of was. It was. The the truth is though, mate. If you don't play with injuries, you hardly ever play. And if you come off every time you're injured, you know, there are certain injuries you just got to go. You got to, you can't play and you've got to get off the field. But if you can carry on, you carry on because firstly, it's what you do. It's not that it's what's expected and it's macho. It's just what you do. You, you've got to remember that a big, a big, the two big part differences between an amateur who plays on a Sunday with his or a Saturday afternoon with his mates and a pro Two big differences are genetics that you can't do a huge amount about and competitiveness. It's a mindset. So generally, we, the pros, are just more competitive than... I'm not saying we hate... There aren't amateurs that hate losing. How hard will you fight not to lose? And generally, that separates you as a kid. And it, there are some kids that get noticed because they're amazing. I wasn't that kid. How hard will you try and how much power can you develop and how much aggression have you got? That's it. And part of that comes, you get injured and you refuse to acknowledge it. And actually it does you damage, does you harm. Really, you should get off the field is the truth of it. But also it makes you who you are. And I've had injuries and come off the field straight away many times. And I've had injuries and stayed on and they've got worse. <laughs> so do I, do I regret it? Yeah, probably. But if I went back, would I do anything differently? Nope. Nope. <laughs> I mean, a couple of times I was told you've got to come off and I just said, no way. That's not just me. That's everyone you see playing on telly. That Everyone's done that. Absolutely no way. But, it, you know, we think it might be broken. Well, then it can still be broken. It'll still be broken in half an hour then, won't it? So if the pain is unmanageable, then you go. But actually, adrenaline, when you're playing fear and adrenaline, they're one of the best painkillers ever, in my opinion. It off, quite often, things that sound incredibly painful aren't that painful until you're off the field because the adrenaline masks the pain a bit. So in 2008, you won the European Challenge Cup, beating Worcester 24-16. What are your memories of that, that day? Was that your first kind of major trophy? Yeah, it was brilliant. Brilliant day. Um, loved it. And we were, yeah, we were under pressure at Bath, because the end of the amateur era, Bath were incredibly successful, and we were a big club that won everything. And we hadn't won anything for a long time, for 10 years. Um so winning that was a major, but you know, unfortunately, when I think of it, I think it was an amazing day, an amazing night out, um, and weekend after that. But actually, I think it's the following year we had a drug scandal at Bath, which kind of wrecked the club really and just put us back years. Is the truth? I mean, 
on paper, we lost a few players. So what? You get new players, but it knocked us back years. And we were really getting somewhere and it, it ended up our coaching team dismantled and fell apart and all that. And we were really getting somewhere. So we won that. We'd get into Heineken Cup quarterfinals, semifinals. We were getting somewhere. We were just starting to build a really good team. And to be honest, it fell apart after that. So, you know, luckily the scandal happened a year after that, not the year before. So we got to win it. But it was a good old day, yeah. <laughs> what you retired in 2012 was back due to a hand injury. Was it a difficult decision to retire? Good question, mate. Yeah, hand injury, as one of the lads called it, hurty finger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I'm coughing so much. Um, my daughter's at nursery, which means just you spend the first few years of their lives ill. Um, bring back a lot of germs. So, yeah, not difficult, mate. Difficult for a little bit, but really not difficult decision at all. As I said earlier on this podcast, I was 32 when I retired, and if I'd have retired at 30, we could have argued it was a bit late. Um, I was smashed to bits, really, and ready to stop putting myself through that really. And um, it, the difficult thing is transitioning into the real world. That's difficult. And you could argue I still haven't, but rugby disappearing um, and you having to fend for yourself a little bit can be very, very difficult. Um, got through it, but that was a difficult couple of years, I'll be honest. And I had a quite a soft landing really. I got given a great job. I had lots to do. I was earning straight away pretty much, um, but I wasn't happy. So, I ended up quitting my job two years after, excuse me, two years after I retired and basically going it alone with no guaranteed income at all. Two kids, mortgage, posh car, and just said, right, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to try and make it in TV and corporate entertainment, which is one way of putting what I do, but I do a lot of it <laughs> because I love doing it and I love doing TV and I want to do things that I like every day and I don't want to wake up having to go somewhere I don't want to go. And I know everyone thinks like that. Everyone wants to love their job. I just can't, I just can't do things that I hate doing repeatedly. I just can't do it. So I get invited to amazing parties, amazing parties quite often. I don't go to them though. I've been a couple of times. I don't like it. There are certain big events I like a lot that I don't. And it, you know, people say it'll be good for you to be there, meet some good people. Nope. Don't want to having some toast with my kids watching telly. I'm not doing that. I'm afraid. I'm not a weirdo. I just, I really struggle. If I've got things in my diary that I know I'm going to hate, I really struggle. If I know that I've got things to look forward to and work that I enjoy, I will be twice as motivated, twice as good, and therefore ideally far more successful. And that is hopefully how it's panning out. Um, so, but no, actually retiring. It's not a decision, mate. I got told you can't play anymore. I had nerve damage in my hand or whatever. You can't play anymore. You're done. So it wasn't my decision. I was over it real quick in rugby terms, just in rugby terms. I was over it real quick. So you get asked all the time if you miss it, not one little bit. I love rugby. I love watching it. I have no desire to play at all ever again. There you go. So we think we found a list of people that have a big had a big influence on your career. So yeah. we'll share some people that we've done in our research and tell us a little bit about the influence they may have had on your career. Yeah. Julian White. Julian White. Oh, mate, greatest tight head of all time, mate. Don't see much of Julian, don't speak to him much, but no one sees much of him or speaks to him much. Um, 
my plan is next time I go to Leicester, which should be in the next couple of months, <coughs> next few weeks, hopefully, I will go and see Julian after the game. Greatest scrummaging tight head England have ever had. Funniest man I ever played rugby with or against. Um, the only prop I played against more than once that I never, ever got the better of. Um, fierce guy. Um, shy guy. And a, f- a force of nature on the field. And so, so funny off it that there are times when you have to stay away from him because it will adversely affect your career if you're laughing through every meeting. And I truly believe I did myself no favours by spending time with him because everyone everyone loved him. But everything he did, I found so hilarious that I would often burst into hysterical laughter during Clive Woodward's meetings. And I think that ended up pissing him off in the end. And I don't blame him. But Whitey's funny to his bones, mate. The funniest man in rugby, full stop. And the and uh, just a mighty, mighty tight head prop. Great guy. Love him dearly. So while we're mentioning, you mentioned prop. Were you tight or loose head? Loose. So then talk to you about the scrum. Because well, again, when I played rugby, I was I was a fly half. So I was just, I kicked or passed and never got tackled. So I just avoided everything of that. Tell us what it's like in the scrum when you got 16 blokes smashing heads against each other. Just what's that actually like? Ever, mate. Brilliant. <laughs> I don't miss the game, but I miss that a bit. <laughs> it's just massive, massive, massive pressure. And the how feeling... Much how much skill is it? And how much power is it? Or was it a combination uh, of both? Uh, my technique was crap because my body didn't love it. Um, I wasn't, I'm not flexible. So I struggled to get in the lovely positions, but I had a lot of raw strength that I could call upon. But against the best guys, that became more difficult because they had that strength and the technique. But... Um, it's tons and tons and tons of pressure. And when you don't buckle and when you hold your own, it's an amazing feeling. And when you get underneath someone and shove them backwards and buckle them or send them back over the top of their mates, it's beautiful, mate. It's, it must be like hitting a golf ball super sweetly or knocking someone out in a boxing match or something. It's a beautiful feeling. Have some of that. And equally, you, you should stay humble at scrum time because you're only ever one scrum away from having being introduced to your own colon. So... It is a very difficult way to make a living. And it was more difficult the early half of my career. Not just because it was it was no, it was different. It was harder in a sense, not physically, but it was very violent. Sort of the first few years of my career is a lot of violence, so a lot more. There's no violence anymore at all in professional rugby union. There's nothing. Um, but it the toll on the body is savage now. Um, but it's a it's a great place to be. It's not for everyone, you know, it, it isn't. Um, and there are lots of guys who genetically, physically could do it, who don't want it, and that's fine. And there are a lot of guys that you'd think they haven't quite got the genetics, but they're so fierce, they find a way. So sort of place where you find out a lot about yourself. Um, and I, I loved it in there. Okay, so our, our second person? Michael Foley. Foley. Yeah, first coach at Bath. <laughs> I mean, put simply, an amazing rugby coach, incredibly bright. Brilliant communicator, did a huge amount for me and us at Bath. But he was so good that Australia took him and you can't blame him. So didn't get to play under him for that long. But geez, when I did, yeah, what a guy. Yeah, I haven't, haven't spoken to him maybe maybe more than once since I stopped playing, since he, since he left Bath. But had a huge impact on all of us. And uh, yeah, a huge amount of respect for him. Our uh, last one is Chris Chesney. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 
Oh God! You, of all the people you could have picked, you've picked Cheza. Um, oh my God! How how to talk appropriately about Cheza on a podcast? Look, I love him, mate. I walked down. I met him for a coffee a couple of months ago in Bath, and I said, "Meet me here." And I walked around the corner, and there's a lot of big blokes knocking around Bath because the rugby team's here, right? And it's a small place. No, no one that big has ever been to Bath. Right, he's bigger. He's bigger than the Undertaker. He's bigger than the Big Show. Like he's bigger than everyone. He's six seven. He's twenty three stone. He's a massive weightlifter. He's got a massive chain round his neck. Big boots on, covered in ink, bald head, long Game of Thrones beard. I walk up. He says, "Hello, boy." He gives me a kiss on the cheek, and the waitress comes over and you know, he goes, yeah, flat white, please, darling. Yeah, cheers, love. Yeah, do you want some eggs? Yeah, I'll have some eggs, please, darling. Yeah, cheers, love. I was like, Ches, I don't think you can say that. I don't think the darling love thing really works anymore. She says, shut up, mate. And I've got a good art, mate. They can see it in me. And you're like, he's right. It, he can do... He is... All the best stories of my time at Saracens, he's in the middle of it. All the best days, the worst days, the biggest events, Ches is in the middle of it. Massive personality, massive part of our group, a very different man from the likes of Richard Hill, alongside whom we played for years. Um, very different man. Uh, but geez, what a guy, what a character. Probably I probably see a text from Ches pop up on my phone on an old Sarries group three times a day, every day of my life. So it isn't like we've lost contact. So we want to talk a little bit about your brother, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so your brother's got Down syndrome and special needs is a, a thing that's really close to us here on the podcast. So we want to just ask, what was that like for you back as a child, kind of growing up with a, a child, with, a brother with additional needs? How was, how was that for you? That's great, mate. It's, you can teach kids anything good or bad. And it was, we didn't know any different. We wouldn't want it any different. Wouldn't want it different now. No burden to us at all. Of course, my mum, my dad, <coughs> mum and my dad, bore the, the burden of it and it is a burden I mean no a burden is that the wrong word yeah probably it I mean they they adore it so it's a it's a burden they've accepted with love and never ever complain about it he's the most adored person in our family and but my mum definitely couldn't for example go back to work which meant we became a single income family my brother needed 24-hour care still does um he's 37 now and my no he's not he's 36 nearly 37 my 37 a couple of weeks my mum has just looked after him almost every day of his life since then so and my dad as well my dad works very hard but also always seemed to be there when we were kids hardly ever seemed to be at work although he worked very hard to amazing amazing parents amazing human beings um our family got better when he arrived it's not like how did you cope with it definitely made us better people better family like no question and I don't know. The first thing people say when you say my brother has downs is they say, oh, you say, why are you saying that? Like, not, I don't, not offended by that. What are you feeling sorry for him for? Like, it, it's different. I got a friend whose brother was injured horribly in a car accident when he was 17 and his life changed, you know, broke his neck. And that, that for me is a tragedy because he knew otherwise, he knew what he used to be able to do and has to adapt. My brother never had to adapt to anything. As my kid said, was he born with it or did he catch it? I said, no, he's born with it. You know, my kids are 33. No, they're a little when I asked that. But it just, it is a big deal because my, 
our lives changed without us knowing it. My parents' lives changed overnight. But, and what, as, as my dad put it when we were kids, you know, imagine if a kid that needed a baby that needed as much help as your brother landed some, in a family where they didn't want to do it or didn't care enough. Yeah. Luckily, he's landed here. and We're like, happy days. Couldn't wait to get him home and show him off to our friends. So we're just thrilled that he came to us, you know, absolutely thrilled. Amazing. So it's just not even, it's one of those things that I understand why you've asked and it's lovely to ask. And I'm really comfortable talking about it, obviously, but it doesn't even occur to me that it's... That's good. That's the way it should be, yeah. More challenging than having a brother who hasn't got Downs. It doesn't, it never occurred to us. Completely normal. It's like if you're born and you've got a one-year-old cat and your cat's got three legs... By the time you're 15, you've had 15 years of a three-legged cat. You're not bothered, mate. It's, got, it's the same thing. We just we just love him because he's a good bloke. It's a bit of a shame because he's probably going to take all the inheritance, which we're resentful about, um, <laughs> for his care. But And he gets much better parking than we do. But otherwise, we like him. <laughs> you have done some runs and bike for job. For charity. To ride. Money or Downs throne. How did you find phones? And do you have any more charity efforts line up? I good question, mate. I <coughs> did a bath I did a bath and a half marathon. Did it really slowly, not very difficult. Um if you do it that slowly. Didn't stop or or walk at all, but just trotted around, got it done, and raised ten thousand quid, um, which was fantastic. I did, I did, I tried, but I just I wanted to finish it without stopping or walking, so that's what I did. But t- to that end, I had to go slowly because I'm not a runner. I was 125 kilos when I did that. Terrible at running. Achilles shot to bits. Uh, weirdly, my hands went numb when I went running because shoulders aren't great, the nerves aren't great, neck probably isn't great, so my hands would go numb when I was running. Weirdly, but. Fine, got round and went out for dinner. I was at the bath half, I, the half marathon. I generally didn't find very difficult, um, even though I'm a crap runner because I just went so slowly. Um, my wife actually, before we met, <laughs> she did a half marathon, didn't do much training for it, and she did it one hour faster than I did, <laughs> which is amazing. A whole hour faster than me. Uh, actually, not true. Fifty nine minutes faster than me, actually. But anyway, but the bike I did John O'Groats to Land's End and uh, that was incredibly difficult. That's the hardest thing I've ever done. That was harder than anything I ever did as a rugby player for me because my body, my, you know, I'm six foot and I'm 20 stone, eight, 20 stone, 10. And my body doesn't like that. My wife's coming in. Come on in. Oh, no, it's not. It's, it's Amber, the nanny. <laughs> what one of our many, one of the many nannies. Um, thank you. Amazing. Thanks, Amber, very much. Well, thank you very much. Take the verses. Thank you. Thank you. Very Legend. <laughs> Getting delivered a bit of lunch. Um, actually, on the nanny thing, before I get any grief, there's a, nan- there's a nanny college in Bath where we live and they need people, families, to take work experience nannies for a few weeks at a time. And you get on the, re- on the list and you basically get nanny after nanny and it's free of charge and you're doing them a favour. We had the assessor come around this morning just to thank us for being so generous with our opportunities. We're like, mate, I've got a free nanny. It's our 10th free nanny. It's amazing. But anyway. Well, cover yourself out well there. Well done. I just cook lunch. It's just cook lunch. And they're like, oh, it's amazing. I didn't even ask for it. Um, oh, well, we'll give you a few more minutes then and we'll, we'll leave you to your dinner. Don't what was I, I was talking about something yeah. then, wasn't I? Your 
Bike ride. Oh, the, bike, the bike ride was raised loads of money, so it's great. It was horrific. My body hated it. And but I never got off the bike on a hill. I rode every mile. John O'Groats to Land End, and I never rode my bike again. It's not a joke. Never rode it again. I could I could do a charity bike ride every day of the year, get offered that many. You I'll, I'll do I'll do anything. I'll do anything before I ride a long bike ride again. My body just despised <laughs> it. You have a podcast called Flats and Shanks that you do with former Wales rugby player Tom Shankly. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, it's... um. I do a podcast with my mate Shanks, and we it was actually our agent's idea. You got to do a podcast. There, there were no, there was no, there was one rugby podcast out, which was some amateur guys that talk talk rugby. There were, if you can think back to a time, there were no ex players doing rugby podcast. There wasn't one, so we were actually the first guys to do it. We only did it because we wanted to do something together because we're mates and we thought we could have fun, so we did it. And it grew a little bit and then some other pods came along and got massive and that's great. And they're our mates and we love them and want them to do well. We have had opportunities over the years to go bigger with our podcast and commercialise it and get more money for it. And we actually haven't taken those opportunities. One of them I thought was a load of bulls really and I didn't didn't make sense. I thought they were making it up. Turned out I was right, uh, promising us loads of money for doing no extra work. And I was like, this is wild. I, I think this is probably rubbish and I was right uh, money sounded nice but it wasn't real the other opportunities we just haven't fancied it because we want to do it our way relaxed unprepared loose not talk much about rugby more talk chat rubbish about Netflix and whatever and what we barbecued the night before what we're barbecuing tonight um, and maybe do some rugby at the end so if someone's going to buy your podcast and give you lots of money they want a bit more in- they want a bit more input into your Content. They also want you to turn up at a studio and record it. We don't want to do that. We don't want to drive anywhere. We don't want to go anywhere. So we've got enough on. We don't. Want to do that. So we've kept it small, but we you know we what? love it. It's good. Yeah, it's good. We like it. Wait, is it good? Probably After, not really good. But we like it. Touring. Sorry. After we're touring, the tyrant, tyrant, you moved into the media, media, media. You did that move come about? And how did you find it? Well, I was injured, surprise, surprise. And my agent called me and said, do you want to do TV, some TV this weekend with Sky Sports, who were covering the rugby then? I said, no, I'm all right. I've, you know, got some mates staying over. We'll have a few beers. I'm all right, thanks. Well, you're doing it and the car's booked. So get a suit. Don't get drunk. Don't be hungover. And basically, the rule is, I think, if you're any good, they'll invite you back. If you're not, they won't. And I did it, quite enjoyed it, did it the next week, enjoyed it a bit more, and I'm still doing it. That's kind of it. So by the time I retired, I'd I'd probably done 50 games on TV by then. And I hadn't commentated, I'd just been a pundit, which is easier, basically. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. It's just easier than the other jobs. But the commentary came a bit later, and now I've started presenting, which is new, but it's really nice and really enjoying it. So I just did it. I talk a lot, as you as you know, so as you can tell. So it's a good place to be, really, if you've got opinions on things and you've got things to say and you like conversing with people, um, which I do. So it felt quite natural. 
it came about because I was forced to do it by my agent. Turned out I enjoyed it and stuck at it ever since. And yeah, I, I still look forward to every game I cover, which makes me feel very lucky, really. So we've chatted to a few pundits, commentators on the podcast from cricket, football and rugby. I'm interested in what do you find most challenging about working in the media? What's the most difficult bit? Um, not being with your family at weekends. Not watching my kids play hockey on Saturdays. That's it. There's no other challenge, mate. It's There's hard work. There's nerves. There's prep. Doesn't make it any harder than any other job. There's voices in your ear when you're trying to talk. There's countdowns. It's There's bits of the job that are hard. Yeah. But... I'm not tarmacking motorways at three in the morning when I don't want to be, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not doing stuff I don't want to do all the time. So I'm very lucky. There's so to call it hard. It is hard in some ways. The hardest bit is that I haven't had my weekends to myself since I was seven years old before I played rugby. They've always been gone. And I don't resent that actually. If it comes to a point when I do, then we'll have to have a conversation, but I get it's midweek now as we're recording this and, I do so much with my kids and I don't work every Saturday and every Sunday, but one of those days, every weekend, I will be working at least one this weekend. It's both days. So if I'm not last Sunday, I wasn't working and it's wicked mates come around a bottle of wine, Sunday lunch, they bring their kids, their best mates and my kids. It's brilliant. But those days at weekends are quite few and far between. And that's the game. That's it. That's what it is. So it's not a complaint, but it is something I'm aware of. Yeah. Uh, but for now, the fact that I'm here, you know, more than most dads during the week makes up for it. We win uh, for Wild right. Cup. Nice, easy question. Who's going to win the World Cup? Uh, the mad thing is, I've been saying South Africa all the way through, then Ireland beat them. Still think South Africa or France or Ireland or New Zealand. <laughs> well. Wait, I've got no idea. I've said South Africa at the start, so I'll stick with them. But as a supposed expert, absolutely no idea, which is why... That is the that is the reason why it's a great World Cup because got no clue. It is, and I think this is the first World Cup where Australia, South Africa, New Zealand have already lost. Wales looked amazing against Australia. Ireland are playing well, um, so yeah, I think it could be, especially Wales. Wales, England side the draw now is, is pretty good all the way to the final. Yeah. So yeah, it could be um could be interesting. Amazing side of the draw that all all the way to the semis. It's good. So it's going to be or it should be a Wales England semi, shouldn't it? No, it doesn't go that way. It swaps oh. anything. So I think it would be more likely to be England against, I forget which way it works, England against South Africa, New Zealand, Ireland or New Zealand. Uh, South Africa, New Zealand, Ireland or France, I think. And then Wales against one of them as well. I think it swaps at semis. It swaps sides of the draw, I think. In England should make a semi-final, full stop. They absolutely should. Every week on the podcast, we like our guests ask questions to each other but they have no idea who the question is going to be asked to. So this question comes from our last guest, who was yeah. Shrewsbury footballer Daniel Udo, and yeah. he asks, what are your three non-negotiables in your life that you live by? Um, okay. Okay. I need time to myself. I've got a big family. I've got four kids. I've got an unbelievably amazing wife. I've got amazing mates. I'm really rich in human terms. I'm very, very lucky. Like with the people around me there, that's what I call richness, really. I'm very, very lucky, but I need quiet time to myself. I need time on my own. Um, just a bit here or there. And I'm never late, ever. 
ever, ever, ever late. And I do not drink coffee ever. I don't care if people call me a cop. I'll call myself a coffee snob. I'm not having it. Life's too short, mate. Brilliant. Okay, so could you do the same for us, please? Could you think of a question for our next guest? Yeah. But we're not going to tell you who the guest is. You can ask yeah, what's anything your, you want. What's your favourite book and why? I will just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We're really a pro. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. It's please continue to leave reviews and pass or podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for talking the time to chat with us today. David, we really enjoy speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have a opportunity 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 to speak with you thank you mason you've been brilliant mate adam you've been quite good mason you've been excellent doing a great job mate you should be very proud of yourself pleasure to come on thanks for having me thank you so much yeah it's mason's second one so he's he's doing really well so thank you flats thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us it was um an honor to chat with you so thank you cheers lads let's do it again sometime take it easy Mason, amazing. So, David's just gone. How did you find that? Good. Yeah, did you enjoy speaking to him? Yes. Yeah, and your questioning, your confidence is improving really quickly. So, well done. Yes. Brilliant. Well done, Mason. And thank you again so much for listening to our podcast. And as we always say, please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. We've got a new website as well, www.twsportspodcast.co.uk, where you can leave reviews and you can also ask questions to us. So you can leave voice notes, send us an email. So if you've got a question for a future guest, a question for me, a question for some of the hosts, then please send it in and we would love to love to answer it. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast and have a great day. Bye. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.